0: Well, good morning, everyone. It's good to see you. Why don't you grab your Bible and open it to Acts chapter 8. For those of you who don't know me, if you're new here, my name's Rob. I'm one of the pastors here at Cornerstone. Glad you're with us. Chapter 8 of Acts. Uh, There's a Bible in front of you if you don't have one in the seat in front of you. Chapter 8, verses 26 to 40. Uh, Last week... For those of you, who maybe you're newer here, we've been going through the book of Acts. And last week, we saw how the gospel broke through and expanded into the Samaritan territory. The Samaritans were historically just enemies of the Jews. And we see the gospel going forward into this place, very unlikely place. The Samaritans, these half-breeds, are now receiving the gospel. The Holy Spirit's falling. There's a mini Pentecost happening in Samaria And we're seeing a revival amongst people that we never thought we would see a revival amongst, Samaritans. Well, in our text today, in a sudden turn of events, Philip, the guy who started, the guy who showed up and started the revival, packs up and leaves. That's surprising, isn't it? You would think if you were doing ministry and a revival broke out and people started getting saved and tongues of fire are falling and people are experiencing the Holy Spirit, you wouldn't just pack up and leave. But Philip does. Philip, led by God, leaves Samaria. Why? Why would that happen? Why would he do that? Well, in our text this morning, we see why. God has ordained Philip to encounter a very special man whom God has singled out to hear the gospel. You know, much of the book of Acts can act for us as a great benchmark for how the church, how mission, how evangelism can happen today. And we see all kinds of patterns, all kinds of norms throughout Acts on how mission and evangelism happened in the early church. And we too, like the early church, are on mission to go. To make disciples of all nations. We, we too are called with the same commission as they are. And so as we seek to share the gospel with people in our lives. As we seek to share Christ with those with whom we interact. To see those who we love come to a saving knowledge of Jesus. There are some very helpful observations in our text today that can equip us. So I hope you've got there. Acts 8. Verses 26 to 40. Hear now the word of the Lord. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of Ethiopians, who was in charge of all of her treasure. And he had come to Jerusalem to worship, and he was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading the Isaiah, Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you were reading? And he, the eunuch, said, well, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now, the passage of Scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. And like a lamb before its shears is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? and he baptized him. And when they came out of the water, the spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus. And as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So what do we see in this text? What pattern can we see here, pattern of gospel mission that can help teach us as we share Christ with those we encounter? Well, the first thing we see is this. We see the inclusion of outsiders. In our text, Philip is instructed by an angel to go travel south towards Gaza. And on this road, Philip encounters a man. And it's very important to see that Luke makes a big deal about the identity of this man, and he, uh, and he describes him in a lot more detail than he normally would. In verses 27 to 28, Luke tells us a few important details. Firstly, he was an Ethiopian. This would be, think modern-day Sudan. This is where this guy was from. This means he would have been considered a foreigner to the Jews and he would have been ethnically different from them. Secondly, we're told he's a eunuch. Luke tells us that the man was a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all of her treasure. It was a very common practice in those days for those who oversaw the king's harem or those who were in close proximity to the queen doing work for the king To be castrated. There was to kind of ensure that no funny business happened. And so this guy was a eunuch in a very high important role. But finally, we see that he had an interest in Judaism. Luke makes note to tell us that this man had not only gone to Jerusalem to worship, but he was on his way back reading from the prophet Isaiah. So this guy was very much interested in Judaism That's about all we know. Scholars have tried to give us more information on the guy. That's what the text says. That's what we know about him. But there's a significant roadblock for this guy. A unique roadblock for a man like this. Eunuchs were not allowed to be part of the covenant community. The law specified this in Deuteronomy 23.1. You can look at that later. It specifically forbids any man who is castrated from entering into the assembly of God. Ben Witherington III says in his commentary here, the fact fact is that Luke has carefully presented this story so that the eunuch is portrayed as somebody on the fringes of Judaism, as the eunuch's reading of Isaiah shows. So, not only is this man outside of Jerusalem, he's coming from Ethiopia, but he's on the outside of Judaism itself. This was a man who did not belong to the covenant community. And yet, God specifically, intentionally, and with great care sends Philip to bring the light of the gospel of Jesus to him. That's marvelous. See, in the Old Testament, there was a prophecy that one day men like this, men like this Ethiopian eunuch, a man on the outside of Judaism, would not be merely tolerated on the outside of the covenant community like he kind of was, but that he would be fully grafted in, fully included it's funny, this, so this guy's reading from Isaiah 53, right? Three chapters later, Isaiah says this. Listen to this. Isaiah 56, verses 3 to 5. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast to my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall never be cut off. Isaiah prophesied about a day where foreigners and eunuchs, people barred by the law of God, Bought, barred by the law of Moses from the covenant community, would be brought into the house of God and given an everlasting name. And we're seeing the fulfillment of that text right here with this man. You know, there's something about gospel mission that we learn from looking at this man and what happens here. Regardless of somebody's religious background, regardless of somebody's ethnicity or somebody's socioeconomic background, or even if someone's sexual or gender identity has been marred and mangled by a cruel cultural practice, they are not too far, not too far outside of the reach of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so we must ask ourselves this question, does our lives do our lives reflect that we understand the gospel this way? Does your understanding of the gospel of who the gospel is available to that it brings in all kinds of people to submit their lives to Jesus? Does that change who you interact with at work? At school? in your friend group? Do you invite in the marginalized, the outsider, into your circumference so that you can share the truth of Jesus with them? Or do you maybe put up boundaries and limitations around who the gospel can actually reach? Who the gospel can draw in and bring transformation into their lives? Are we as a church a welcome place so that fringe outsiders can come in and hear the good news about Jesus and be saved and transformed by it. And I think often we're not a welcoming place sometimes as Christians or as churches because we're worried that welcoming somebody in to hear the gospel means approving of their sin. But listen, welcoming in an outsider who is in lost darkness and despair, does not mean that their sin is being tolerated. Inclusion does not mean that all the sinful mindsets or worldviews that are contradictory to Christ's gospel are somehow included. No, of course not. But it means the church ought to be a place where anyone, and I mean anyone, is welcome to come and hear the gospel of Jesus like this guy was. And so if we rule out outsiders, if we, in our evangelism, filter out people, well, they're too far gone, or they're too weird for me, or they're too, I'm not, I'm not going to build a relationship with them. They're too hostile. If we filter out people, we deny the gospel of its power to include and save anyone. So remember, when you are tempted to filter out who you share the gospel with, who you reach out to, because of maybe their their ideologies or their apparent difference from you, remember, Jesus saved you. You were outside. You were a rebel. You were a sinner. And Jesus called you and saved you. The gospel brings in outsiders, people who might be considered on the fringe and changes them completely. And this ought to assure us, even when things look grim with those we love, that God, God can do it. The gospel can do this. The gospel can change their lives, even to the most unlikely places. That's the first thing we see. But The second thing we see is this, the presence of divine help. I think that water bottle has been used, so I'm not going to drink from it. (laughs) Not sure. I I hope you've noticed how present God is in this text. You see him all over the place. He's everywhere. Look at verse 26. Now an angel of the Lord appeared. And said to Philip, rise and go towards the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. There are several times in the Bible where we see, and in, sorry, specifically in the book of Acts, where we see angels showing up. In Acts 5, an angel liberates the apostles from prison and directs them to go and preach the gospel in the temple. You remember that? In Acts 12, an angel delivers Peter from Oh, look at this guy. Oh, man. <laughs> Uh. <laughs> Thanks, Matt. <laughs> and in a couple of weeks, we'll see a text where an angel, again, delivers Peter from prison. Angels are intervening in certain moments throughout this book. But not only this in this text, so we see an angel show up. It says several times that we see the Holy Spirit leading and guiding Philip in his encounter with this man. In verse 29, the Spirit tells Philip to go over and join the chariot. At the end of our text, in verse 39, it says the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more. Whether that's a miraculous event, or it just means that the Spirit led Philip away. Hey, go here instead. We're not sure, but the point is, the Spirit is moving and active in the life of Philip. God is very intentionally directing and guiding Philip in his mission and evangelism. And so Luke is showing us that God is going with his people. God is actively involved, guiding, directing, causing circumstances and events to happen in order that his purposes are accomplished. It's interesting that in the past few chapters we've been reading, Acts 6-8, to we've been hearing the story of stephen this powerful man of the spirit who proclaimed the gospel in front of the sanhedrin and who was stoned and killed and then we last week we've been following philip this man of the spirit and wisdom who goes into samaria and preaches the gospel and people get saved but do you notice who these guys are these guys weren't apostles these were just regular people in the church Regular men of the church. Acts 6 3 tells us that they were full of the Spirit and wisdom. These were just men who were filled with the Spirit and the wisdom of God. So here's the question Do you believe that the Spirit of God, living within you, is able to guide, direct, and instruct you as you seek to bring the gospel to new places. To your neighbor, to your workplace. Do you believe that? Or do you say, well, no, the God couldn't use me. I'm not an evangelist. I, I'm not, that's not my gifting. I, I can't do I can't do that. That's the pastor's job. That's why we pay you, Rob. Your job is to go and evangelize Aurelia and my friend's. Pastor Paul's job is to evangelize my friends, not my job. That's the elder's job. It's somebody else's job. Sadly, I think in many churches, the work of mission, the work of community outreach, the work of evangelism is simply relegated to a certain few. And most of our mindset is, well, I give money to the church so other people can do the work. Other people can evangelize. Other people can share the gospel. But me, no. There's somebody on staff for that. But this denies not only the normative pattern that we see, especially in this text, but it also denies the promises of Christ. Jesus promised that God would provide help for you for his people specifically. In John 16, verse 7, Jesus says this, It's to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Jesus tells, Jesus tells us that God has sent his spirit for us. And we have seen throughout Acts how the spirit is working in power, but not only in the apostles, not only in the disciples. Jesus' 12 disciples, I mean. God works through regular folks like Stephen and Philip, regular folks who are filled with the Spirit and filled with the wisdom of God. And that's you. That's me. I, Howard Marshall here, helps us. He says this, what is important is that in this way, Philip's journey and the subsequent action are seen to have been instigated by God And thus to have been part of his intention. The church did not simply stumble upon the idea of evangelizing the Gentiles. It did so in accordance with God's deliberate purpose. It is God's purpose to reach the nations, to reach the outsider with the gospel of Jesus. And he has provided you, and he has provided me, he's provided his church, his people, with the Holy Spirit. And his presence and his guiding and his leading to accomplish that goal. The Apostle Paul, in light of this, will say this in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 4-6. to Such is the confidence that we have through Christ towards God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us. But our sufficiency is from God who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. To summarize, we can be confident when we share Christ because our sufficiency comes from God. The help comes from God. Pastor Paul, a couple weeks ago, referenced, referenced a quote from the Puritan John Flavel. And he says this, the duty is ours, though the power is God's. What power we have depends upon the exciting and assisting strength of Christ. The point is this: it is our duty to share Christ with unbelievers. That's what God calls all of us to. But it is God's power and it is his spirit that we trust in. So, So far in this story, we've seen how the gospel, what gospel mission looks like. It brings in outsiders. It's empowered by the Holy Spirit. God's presence and power is involved. Thirdly, we see in this text the the power and the word of the word of God. The power of God's word in action. Philip, having been instructed by the Spirit... Approaches the chariot. Imagine that. Just kind of like God says, go talk to this stranger. And you're like, okay. Just walk right up to him. And here's the man reading from Isaiah. A portion where it describes the suffering servant, the Messiah of God. It's like, well, you couldn't ask for an easier end. Perfect. And so Philip asks the man, Do you understand what you're reading? Do you understand? And the man answers, well, how can I understand unless somebody explains it to me? And he invites Philip in to sit with him. And he asks him a question about the text. Look at verse 34. And the eunuch said to Philip, about whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? The guy's been reading this and racking his brain. Like, I don't, I don't get this. Who's he talking about? Is this about him? Who is this about? It says Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with the scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. Notice what it says. Philip was able, starting from the text, taking the Bible, he explained to this man how Jesus was the prophet. Jesus was was the guy of whom the prophet was speaking and he was able to preach the gospel to him. So Philip here is clearly a man of the word. He's, he knows the scriptures. And he's able to take the scriptures and preach Jesus to this guy from that text. This man who was clearly struggling to understand what he was saying. You know, it's all too common today that we overcomplicate evangelism. We do. We, we, we rightly want to prepare ourselves for evangelism and prepare ourselves for questions that we might be asked from people. And so we go online and we start researching apologetics and presuppositional apologetics. And we start watching apology at church. And we start watching YouTube videos of Christians slamming unbelievers. We're like, yeah. And we get all riled up and we try to learn all these things. And that's our first instinct. I want, to, I want to train myself in evangelism, and that's where I go. But, and, and it's not to say that there's anything wrong with learning apologetics. We're going to see, actually, a bit later in Acts, how Paul contextualizes the gospel. And we're going to learn a lot from that. But for most of us, it doesn't need to be more complicated than building a relationship with an unbeliever, a friend, a colleague, family member. And inviting them to read the Bible with you. That's it. Taking the scriptures and reading it with them. It doesn't need to be more complicated than that. On the most part. But sadly most of us don't even get there. We we can't even get there. Did you see what it says in verse 34? Then Philip opened his mouth. That's the key. That's the key where a lot of us struggle as we... We just can't get our mouth open. We can't just get that invitation out there. Hey, let's read Mark together. or Hey, let's read this passage together. We just, we can't open our mouths. Listen, if, if we open the Bible, if we open our mouths, it's God who grants the understanding, not us. It's the Holy Spirit. It's God who illuminates, not us. We fair, faithfully share Jesus, but God softens the heart. This text is you know, maybe intended to be a very typical example of how most people get saved. For most of us here, this, is, this was how we got saved, wasn't it? Somebody in our life, maybe it was a Sunday school teacher, maybe it was our parent when we were a child, maybe it was a friend, took the time to open the Bible with us and talk to us about Jesus from it. Isn't that how most of us in here, not all of us have a Damascus Road experience like we're gonna hear about next week. Not all of us have that. A lot of the time, this is how we're saved. A faithful person opens the Bible and shares Christ with us. So the point is God's word is powerful. It's enough for life and godliness and, yes, even evangelism. We don't need to overcomplicate it. We don't need to be ashamed of it. We don't need to edit it or redefine it to make it more palatable. This is why Paul will tell us in Romans 10, 17, faith comes from hearing and hearing through what? The word of Christ. It's a cornerstone. Could you, like Philip, take your Bible with somebody? with a friend, a colleague, family member, whoever it is that the Holy Spirit directs you to, open it and use the scriptures to tell them about Jesus. Do you love the scriptures? Do you understand the scriptures? Could you explain them to someone? And there's something important here that we need to understand about the nature of the scriptures. Is that we can read and study the scriptures our whole lives. But it is entirely possible for us to never understand them. Like this eunuch. We're reading and reading and reading and reading and reading. But we don't understand. Jesus warns the Pharisees about this. In John 5 verse 39. He says this. You search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me, that you may have life. So simply getting through a Bible reading plan in a year does not mean that we understand the scriptures. We must be able to see Christ in the scriptures. We must be able to get to Christ through the scriptures. Charles Spurgeon Aptly says here, commenting on this text, you may begin anywhere in the Bible and preach Jesus. You can begin at the first chapter of Genesis or at the last chapter of Malachi, at the first of Matthew or the last of Revelation and still preach Jesus for he is the sum and the substance of the whole scripture. So like Philip, God has equipped us with his spirit and with the scriptures for this very task. But it takes us opening our Bibles, it takes us opening our mouths to share the gospel with whom God, by his spirit, leads us to encounter. Well, we have seen three things so far about this gospel mission, these patterns, these helpful patterns that come from this. The inclusion of outsiders, we've seen the, the power of God at work, the, the, the influence of God, we've seen the power of the scriptures. Well, final thing we see in this picture of gospel mission, is this, the response of faith. The response of faith. As Philip preached the scriptures and the gospel to the eunuch, it's clear that the subject of baptism and obedience to Christ came up. After all, Jesus had told his disciples in Matthew 28, verses 19 to 20, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. So Philip would have explained to the man, in order to follow Jesus, you must be baptized in obedience to him. And look at what happens in verse 36. As they were going along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, see, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down in the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. The eunuch coming to a saving knowledge of Jesus is stirred. He's moved by the gospel. He sees his need for salvation, and he recognizes Christ's call for a total life surrender. And so the response is immediate. The man decides to obey Christ and asks to be baptized immediately. And Philip, understanding that, you know, this guy is going to Ethiopia. There's no Christians there. No one's going to baptize. There's not a church there he can get baptized in. Like he's just out on the road. He baptizes him immediately. He sees no reason to not baptize the man. And he's baptized on the side of the road. This pattern of faith and baptism is pretty common throughout Acts. Faith and then immediate baptism. On Acts 2, in the day of Pentecost, we'll see Peter preaches to this multitude, remember? And they ask him, what do we do to be saved? And do you remember how Peter replied? He said, repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Last week, we saw this when Pastor Steve preached on Acts 8. After Philip preaches the gospel in Samaria, it says, but when they believed, Philip, as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. And we'll see in a couple weeks from now in Acts 10, when Peter sees the gospel fall on Gentiles, it says this, Peter declared, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people? Who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have, and He commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. So it's critical to see that the first act a person takes when they place their faith in Jesus is an act of obedience to Christ as a sign of allegiance to Him. Baptism is the first step of obedience as a sign of allegiance to Jesus. Paul will make this very clear in Romans 6. Romans 6.4 says that we were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. In order that, so, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Baptism symbolizes newness of life. And so Paul will go on to say this. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. So baptism is a way of saying, sin no longer reigns, Jesus does. I no longer obey sin, I obey Jesus. That's what baptism symbolizes. And so the eunuch believes this, and he's immediately baptized. He responds to his faith by being baptized. And do you note the question that he asked? Verse 36, what reason, what reason do I have for not being baptized? So here's a question for us that we land with today. What reason do you have for not obeying Christ? You know, they're most likely in a group like this, some of us here today who have been putting off obedience putting off submission to Jesus' commands. Tomorrow, tomorrow I'll obey that. Tomorrow, later, I'll obey. Perhaps you know you ought to be baptized. You're here and you know you ought to be baptized. And you're not being obedient like this man was. You believe in Jesus, but you have yet to obey him in this first step of allegiance. Here's the question that you must ask yourself. It's the question the eunuch asked himself. What reason do I have for not being baptized? What's my reason? But for those of us who have been baptized, we've obeyed like the eunuch did. This text presents us with another question. What reason do I have for not opening my mouth and sharing Jesus? When Philip heard the voice of God say, go, preach, what did he do? He obeyed. He opened his mouth and he preached. When the eunuch heard the command of Jesus through Philip to be baptized, what did he do? He obeyed and he was baptized. This text ends with the response of their obedience. It's quite a beautiful thing. Verse 39. And when they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord carried Philip away. And the eunuch saw him no more. And what? And he went on his way rejoicing. The eunuch rejoiced because he was a child of God. He rejoiced because the Lord had saved him. Philip was led by the spirit to go to the next place, to go to the next person. To preach the gospel, to continue obeying Jesus. So, brothers and sisters, let's not let petty reasons stand in our way any longer. Some of you need to talk to us today about being baptized. We're going to have a baptism service on Easter a few weeks from now. Some of you need to talk to us about getting baptized. You haven't been baptized, you know you should. That's your step of obedience. Some of you need to go home today and finally decide I am going to open my mouth. I am going to invite that person to open the Bible with me and read. I'm going to share my faith. There is a great rejoicing that comes when we partake in that gospel mission. There is a great joy when those that we thought could never come to Christ come to Christ. There is a great rejoicing that happens when we, led by the Spirit, the people of God, when we live in obedience to Jesus and proclaim Him. May that be true of us. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we thank You for this great picture, this great example of what a gospel mission looks like. or that we would go to the outsider we would not be filtering who the gospel is for, but that we would be ready at all times, aided by the presence of the Spirit, equipped with the power of the Word, ready to see the response of faith. Lord, may that be true of us. I pray for those people in this room now who are feeling the conviction of your Spirit. They've got a person in mind, or a couple people in mind, that they now know, okay, there's no more... Excuses, I I need to share the gospel. Or there are people here who are saying, There is no more, there is no reason for me not to be baptized. Lord, I pray that through the power of your Spirit, you would stir us. You would make us effective missionaries in our community, effective evangelists to those around us, not for our glory, but for the glory of Christ and the glory.